Hello, and welcome to Ashrit Parvangada's Tipping Points, a podcast where we explore world tipping points that brought us to where we are today. In the last episode, we explored how Prince Henry and his country of Portugal almost single-handedly led Europe to discovering Mansa Musa's River of Gold. He would pass away before they actually found it, but they did find it, only 10 years after his death, discovering the town of El Mina, the mine. But Portugal doesn't have much to offer. A French merchant notes from the time, the Portuguese only have trifles. And where Europeans used to have access to high-quality Asian goods via the Silk Road and Constantinople, with the defeat of the Byzantines by the Ottomans and the subsequent closure of Constantinople's slaving and trading markets to Europeans, there's a new pressure for access to Asian goods and for more slaves. Africans in particular want fine Indian cloth in exchange for their slaves. The Portuguese must find a route to India, and the Spanish are hot on their tails. For finding this route, the Portuguese send men south and then east around the Cape of Africa. This starts with Bartolomeo Diaz, and eventually it was Vasco da Gama who finds India, the real India. The Spanish, who had signed a treaty with the Portuguese, granting all of African exploration to the Portuguese, decide to take a gamble and go westwards. Their man for the job is a skilled sailor named Christopher Columbus. Now, I did write an episode with a working title of Three Kidnappers and the Quest for India, which I may release at some point as a special episode. But the quest for India itself is a diversion from what this season is about. This season is about tipping points that led to Europe's domination of the world. And the quest for India would take away attention from what I believe in 1500 is more important, the discovery of America. This mistaken discovery of India, that being America, will change the world in a way that few things ever have. This season is Redland's Black Hands, and this episode is called Land Ho. Here we go. While we now know Europe to have colonized Asia and Africa, the majority of this will happen in the 17 and 1800s, well into the modern era. In the year 1500, such a thing is a pipe dream, and a lot will happen in the following 200 years that tips the scales in Europe's favor. The first of these was Europe hearing of the legend of Mansa Musa and venturing to find his river of gold and then finding it. This establishes a mutually beneficial relationship between Europeans and West Africans for the first time ever. Mutually beneficial in 1500, at least. The second is Columbus's discovery of the Americas, which we'll look at in this episode. The episodes until now have taken a distinctly character-based approach, 
where we followed the lives of individual people, Mansa Musa, Al Nasser, Prince Henry. However, this episode aims to shed light on something much larger in scale than any one person's life can encompass. And so it will take a more bird's eye view of the Americas, and I think you'll find it as interesting as I do. Let's start by asking a series of questions. To be frank, these are not questions that I claim to have the be-all, end-all answer to, but they are questions that we can explore together that shed light on something new. Question 1. The primary question for this episode is, and for this season for that matter, is what led to Europe's rise? Europe did have social developments before the colonization of the Americas and before making contact with West Africa that lent themselves to economic growth. For example, the Magna Carta in England was signed in the 1200s, which limited the powers of the King of England, giving more power to the people. Developments like these are a factor, no doubt. And there's various kinds of these developments that happen through Europe during this time. But I would argue that these kinds of social changes are not the largest reason for Europe's rise. After all, social changes like this happened at many times throughout human history. The Greeks had democracy, and while it led to many cultural developments there, they were conquered by the Macedonians, who were an autocracy with a dictator, Alexander, at the helm. The Romans had a republic, but that gave way within a couple of centuries to an empire with an emperor, and Rome continued at its height for the majority of its preeminence in the Mediterranean world. They also eventually collapsed to the Ottomans, who were not a democracy. Now, as we move into the 14 and especially 1500s, Europe enters the period called the Renaissance, which roughly translates to something like rebirth, renaissance. They're re-exploring things that the Greeks and Romans had done. Various European scholars, often connected to the church, would read ancient Greek and Roman texts and poetry and try and bring elements of that cultural flair back to life of Europe in medieval times. But rediscovering these things does eventually lead to Europe's rise. So why was Europe of the Renaissance different from Europe of antiquity? What led to its global rise this time? In this episode, I'll take the perspective that it wasn't primarily these social developments, and that there was something harder and larger involved. We'll continue to explore this question through the course of this episode. Question 2 is an easier question to answer immediately. In the year 1500, what gave any kingdom in the world its power? Was it the gun? Was it the horse? Was it other technologies? All those things factor in to some degree, but they only served in this era to slightly tip the scales. First and foremost, what gave a nation power in 1500, and for all the centuries of human history before that, was how many people you had. 
Despite some minor technological differences from one place to another, overall human productivity in 1500 was relatively the same the world over. According to renowned economist Angus Madison, who is perhaps the most widely quoted economist when studying historical prosperity across the globe, in the year one, the per capita annual income in Italy, the wealthiest country in Europe at the time, on a per person basis was about 1,000 US dollars in today's money. Now, what was the per capita income in India in, let's say, the 1500s? About $1,000. What about in China? About $1,000. What about in Europe in 1500? It was also roughly about $1,000 in today's money. You go over most of the world and you get a range of anywhere between, let's say, $800 and $1,500 for most periods of human history. By today's standards, poor. This is $1,000 per year, mind you, not per month. And the reality is that most people were poor for most of written human history. If you could get a nutritious meal on the table every day, reliably, you were doing pretty well in life. Now, in today's world, the difference between nations' powers comes down to how many people they have multiplied by the prosperity per person. So, the US has 300 million people making something like $60,000 a year, Hence, they have something like a $23 trillion economy, the largest one in the world by a significant margin. China has 1.4 billion people, but they're doing less well on average, and they can buy less things on average, and so China's overall national power is just a little bit under the United States, and so on and so forth for all countries in the world. But in the year 1500 and all the years before it, everybody's income per year was roughly the same. And so a kingdom's power came from how many people they commanded. How many people owe their political allegiance to a king? The number of people that a nation had, or rather a kingdom, there were no nations at that time, also determined other things. How big an army it could field, how many swords it could make, how many stables it can run, what kind of logistics it can operate, how many roads it can build. In today's world, developed countries, even with very few people, can rely on technology to build their things. You only have a few people, but you have a bulldozer who can compensate for many, many people. But in medieval times, you want to build a road, you need people. If you want to build a bigger road, you need more people. Again, there were minor technological differences between one region and another in Eurasia, but not enough for one kingdom to dominate another just yet. The Spanish had a technological advantage against the tribals of the Canary Islands, but as we covered in the last episode, it took them still 100 years to conquer the Canaries, despite that technological advantage. By and large, the rule applies People equals power. So that answers question two. What gives a kingdom power in 1500? Moving on to question three. What determines how many people a kingdom has? This one is also pretty simple to answer. 
It's how much food you can grow. If you grow more food, your population grows and it creates pressure to expand. An extension of how much food you can grow is how much fertile land you control, that being arable land, land that can be used for farming. This is a large reason for why kingdoms in the most fertile regions of the world commanded the most power. At a regional scale, France has always been the most powerful kingdom in Europe, or has often been the most powerful kingdom in Europe, up until 1500 and well beyond that year, for the simple reason that it has the most arable land in Europe. The two overall wealthiest and most powerful regions of the world in 1500 and for all of the years before it were India and China simply because they have the most arable land of any regions in the world in that year and can grow the most food and support the most people. The kingdoms that controlled the Gangetic Plains in India and the Yellow and Yangtze Rivers in China were the kingdoms that often dominated the entirety of those areas. In the year 1500, the Indian subcontinent had nearly 25% of the world's people, and produced 25% of the goods of value of the world, China was exactly the same. So between just those two regions, more than half of the world's stuff is made, and everyone knew it to some degree or another. Hence, Europeans are on the quest to find trade routes to India. So let's move on to question four. Why are the Americas populated by Europeans, whereas Africa and Asia are not? After all, Europeans colonized both places by the 1800s, so why was there a different outcome? America became a European-populated region that would surpass Europe in the 1900s and become its protector, that being economically and militarily speaking. Africa and Asia would find their independence in the 1900s, still mostly populated by the peoples who were there before the era of colonization. Well, the answer to this one is that when Europeans became the first ones to establish contact with the Americas, they brought with them a superweapon that was region-specific. This superweapon was smallpox. Europeans, Asians, and Africans already had smallpox outbreaks over the last couple of centuries, and various other diseases, such as measles. You'd have a plague every few centuries, it would kill something like 20 to 40% of your population in any given region, but by and large, within a hundred years, people would pick up the pieces and try again. The native peoples of the Americas, isolated from the Eurasian landmass, had never had a smallpox outbreak. In 1519, Cortes and his men introduced a smallpox outbreak in Mexico. At Cortes' arrival, Mexico had about 25 million people, perhaps the most densely populated part of the Americas at the time. Let's keep in mind that the entire Spanish population at the time was 9 million people in Spain and all of its colonies. The entire European population was about 60 million, so about half the number of people as all of Europe lived in Mexico. Cortes was a skilled general and a good strategist in many ways, but what really did all the heavy lifting for him was the spread of smallpox. 
By the end of 1521, he conquered Tenochtitlan, the Aztec capital, which was already suffering from an outbreak of smallpox. By 1561, a mere 40 years after the conquering of Tenochtitlan, an estimated 90% of the Mexican population had perished from disease, about 22 million people out of 25 million. Let's put things in perspective. Cortés, in the famously bloody battle at Tenochtitlan, killed about 100,000 people, while his own forces lost about 500 Spaniards and 20,000 allied tribespeople who also hated the Aztecs. An impressive battle, no doubt, on his part. And he leveraged technologies like siege technologies and guns and horses in order to conquer the city. So 100,000 Aztecs died in that battle. 22 million people would die of smallpox over the coming decades. So when people ask why Europeans conquered the Americas, and answer this with, they had better ships, they had guns, they had horses. Yes, all of these factors played some part, but the reality is that these factors played, at best, a minor role. In pure numbers of deaths of the Native Americans, these factors played something like 1-5% to of the number of deaths in the Americas. The real, and almost the only reason, was the smallpox superweapon. By the time the next generation of European colonists arrived in the Americas, whole civilizations had been wiped off the face of the earth. Their cities and towns were swallowed by the jungle, leading Europeans to think that the Americas were a vast land of untapped wilderness, which you still see th come through in stories that we're told today like, say, Lewis and Clark, exploring the vast, untapped wilderness of the Americas, for example. Various stories paint the Americas as this great land to be explored. But the reality is that the native people's social structures collapsed, leading Europeans to think that the people who remained were savages who scurried in the forest. To be fair, many tribes did live connected to nature in the Americas, but many people had also lived in fairly well-populated settlements, towns, and cities where some of them grew crops. All of this disappeared by the time most of the exploration of the Americas happened. Even today, people stumble onto ruins in the Amazon of lost cities that nobody knew even existed. For example, an article in the Smithsonian Magazine dated May 25th, 2022, by Brian Handwork, called Lost Cities of the Amazon Discovered from the Air, described how mapping technology is used to cut through the canopy and detect sprawling urban structures in Bolivia that suggest sophisticated cultures once existed. This is happening in 2022 more than 500 years after the Battle of Tenochtitlan. There's a great book by David Graeber where he looks at the social structures of many of the native peoples. I was surprised by how diverse a tapestry of peoples there were. Some were raiders, traders, farmers, city folk, tribals, savages who sacrificed little girls, some were pacifists who never went to war and seemingly solved all of the problems of their regions. 
all constituted unique peoples who may have had something to teach the world and at the very least would have had unique art and culture to share with the rest of us. I was then overcome by sadness knowing that these peoples are all lost to the world forever. Their art, their songs, their joys and worries, we will simply never know. So coming back to question four once more, why are the Americas populated by Europeans and why do people in the Americas speak European languages, not the native languages? Simply put, because all the natives died. Imagine your own city. I live in Berlin with three point something million people. Imagine if 90% of the people in your city disappeared over the span of a generation, right? Let's say you're a young person today, time skip 30, 40 years, nine out of every 10 people you know is gone. The shops that you used to go to, your workplace, your neighborhood, your friends, they're all gone. Who will you speak to now? Why do Europeans populate the Americas and not Asia and Africa, despite colonizing them both? By contrast, in Asia and Africa, there were more diseases than Europeans were used to, leading to high mortality rates of Europeans who settled there. This is why pretty much no European colony was permanently established on the Asian or African mainland, with the notable exception of South Africa. There were simply too many people that would potentially resist an invasion. People equals power. Even if you just try to hold on to the important areas like the British did with trading nodes, eventually the technology disseminates to the colonized people and they rise up and fight back. This is what happened in India, China, and Africa, for example, leading to their independence in the 1900s. In the Americas, there was no one left to rise up and fight back. Since your city is falling apart, you probably have to flee into the forest, relying on whatever you know about how to live there. You have to become a tribal people to some extent, and you have to try and resist using whatever means you have left. For the Europeans, all the land was there for the taking. The population of the Americas before European first contact was estimated to be around 50 or 60 million people. By the 1700s, that population had been reduced to 5 million people. Spread amongst the whole Americas, it's not like these 5 million are all in one place getting ready to resist. No, they're spread, scattered, cultureless, and landless. One thing that it is important to note is that no European came to the Americas, as far as evidence suggests, with the intention of spreading disease and killing everybody. This was unintentional. People didn't even know how diseases really worked back then. So while, yes, many of them did have malicious intent and enslaved people and killed others and took land, the killing of 90% of the native peoples of the Americas was an accident. Question five is our final question for this episode. What is American land good for? Well, we covered this already. Land is the primary determinant of power. 
But the reason I ask this question again is because American land is a little bit different. While in Eurasia or Africa, if you conquer more land, you now have a larger population to feed because you haven't exterminated the local population and they need to eat. So much of the arable land goes towards growing food for those people. And what the king gets and what the king's retinue gets is the surplus food as tax. Tax were often paid in grains in the Middle Ages. Again, food pretty much equaled money back then. Now you can then recruit those people into your army or have them work for you, and this generally would have been the most productive outcome. In America and the islands of the Atlantic, that outcome isn't possible. Quite simply, all the people were dead, and the colonists only numbered in the thousands. The amount of land that they now have at their disposal is vast. The Americas and the islands of the Atlantic account for nearly 50 million square kilometers of land, roughly 5 million of which is arable, meaning it can grow crops today. As a comparison, Europe has about 3 million square kilometers of arable land. The Indian subcontinent has 2 million. East Asia has about 2 million as well. So if arable land is people and people are power, generally speaking, Europe has opened up all of the Americas to itself, effectively tripling its power in the span of a couple of centuries as they cultivate more land. However, another thing to note is that Europeans won't just use this land for food. Because there are so few of them, these millions of square kilometers of arable land can be used for other things. You can grow sugar or cotton, things that were luxuries in Europe and Asia. In those places, you have to grow food and that goes to feeding the population. Here, you can have so much more surplus. Now, who's going to work the land to grow all of this stuff? Europeans who did come to the Americas weren't suited to the climate. So you need a lot of people to come and help you grow things, and you need them quick. Lucky for Europe, they've just established a connection with the largest slave-providing region in the world. There are people there who are stronger and better adapted to the hot weather and disease-resistant, and you have access to plenty of them. That is, Africans. Europeans have already made a great relationship with West African kingdoms, whereby the kingdoms provide the manpower and European kingdoms trade the goods. But this relationship is about to become even sweeter, and we'll be right there to taste the sugar. This was Ashrit Parvangara's Tipping Points. See you next time. <laughs>